we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center. And our guest this week is David North, who is a fellow with the center and, more importantly, is probably the person with the longest track record in immigration research in the United States on any side of the issue, in any aspect of the issue. He's been doing this, as far as I can tell, since the Eisenhower administration. And so I thought it would be great to have David on to talk about his background in the issue, how he got to it, sort of how, what he's done over the years, and then also some thoughts of his about how things have changed, because he has a perspective that no one else does. We probably will have him on future podcasts to talk about specific policy issues, because he focuses on a number of interesting issues that people that, that aren't really explored as they should be. But I thought for his first appearance on the podcast to talk about more his experience in the issues. David, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you, Mark. Looking back, I first ran into immigration as a major issue back in 1959. A little background, I had been active in democratic politics in New Jersey and held a political appointment with the state government. I was a bureau chief, probably one of the youngest bureau chiefs in the government at that point. And I was in charge of public relations for the New Jersey Division of Employment Security. Now, that was the unit of state government, and every state has one of these, that handles the employment service and the unemployment insurance service. That was my job, and uh, as I got into it, I found one of the most interesting fellow bureau chiefs was the guy in charge of farm labor. And New, New Jersey had farm laborers at that point? Southern New Jersey, this is all in southern New Jersey, has a lot of very flat, very fertile land, and it was not used for much for dairy cows or, or hay or wheat. It was used for um, labor-intensive crops, blueberries and carrots and tomatoes and you know stuff like that. Which is why uh, the license plate, I think, to this day still calls New Jersey the Garden State, right? You're right, absolutely. And it was more of a garden state then than now. Uh, the <laughs> suburbs have reached out and, and gobbled up uh, what had been perfectly lovely uh, farmland in the past. But here I was in this rather stuffy agency, and the guy who had interesting problems uh, and who was also an interesting human being, he was formerly a, a farmer in, in New Jersey. So we bonded, and it turned out that an issue that was bothering both of us was that the... Uh, New Jersey farmers wanted to use West Indian workers. These were H-2s, not H-2As, but H-2s in those days. And they were from Jamaica and Barbados. And we felt that they ought to be using Puerto Ricans because the Puerto Ricans were 
equally migratory and equal agricultural background. But the growers didn't like that idea. They liked their um, semi-indentured, English-speaking folks from Jamaica and Barbados. And the difference, just to interject, is obviously the Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, so they don't need visas and what have you to work there. Yeah, they're they're Puerto Ricans, and and if you get unhappy with a Puerto Rican worker, you can fire him, but you can't deport him. Right. And so they were somewhat less malleable than the um, the British West Indies, PWIs, they we called them. So there was an effort made to um, discourage the use of these foreign workers, and an effort that was thwarted eventually by our fairly conservative Democratic governor, late Robert Minor. But in the meantime, I, I was introduced to the interesting question of, of bringing in foreign workers who were easily exploited and instead of using American workers. And that was where it started. That was in 1959. Then I moved on in, in 61 to the uh, Ghana Junior political appointment with the Kennedy administration. And I was assistant to the Assistant Secretary of Labor back in 1961. And then I started paying attention to the Bracero program. And the Braceros were men, always men, from Mexico who came in to harvest various crops, and they were as we were exploited as easily and maybe more so than the uh, BWIs. This was a legal program, just to clarify. Oh, yeah. The legal program right. it started a blatant World War II because of an alleged labor shortage. Probably there was one at that point, and then expanded tremendously as as growers found out that they had a cheap and docile foreign labor force that they could turn on and turn off like a like a spigot. And at one point, the Bracero program was renewed. It was a temporary program, and it was renewed by Congress for a year or two years or something. And at one point, it was renewed, and the, the president, this is John Kennedy, signed the bill somewhat reluctantly, but he signed the bill. And I complained to the then secretary, W. Willard Wirtz, Secretary of Labor, about this, and we talked for a bit. And then some years later, I had left the department to work in the campaign of 1964. I came back to the department as assistant to the Secretary of Labor for farm labor, and I was working for the first time in my life absolutely full-time on immigration-related issues. And I've been at it ever since. So you were in the uh, Johnson administration, Secretary of Labor. What did you end up doing after that? Did that come to an end in 1969? or? Uh... Well, I kind of stayed stayed near the issue. This is sort of hard to believe in this day and age, but I was selected to be the staff director of the Cabinet Committee on Mexican-American Affairs. Oh, I speak no Spanish. <laughs> I was born in Chicago, lived on the East Coast, and the Johnson administration, to be honest about it, simply didn't have close enough ties to the Mexican-American community to hire somebody from the Mexican-American community to, to do that job. But I shrugged a little and, and went ahead and, and was the staff director of this committee, which was kind of an in-house lobby for Hispanics. And, and again, we occasionally ran into some immigration issues. So our, our focus wasn't on people who weren't in the United States yet. Our focus was on the people who were who were in the United States. And we also included marginally Cubans and Puerto Ricans, but it was primarily the Mexican-Americans, the Chicanos of, of the Southwest that was our, our client. And 
we proceeded to do what we could to advance their interest. And there was a civil rights conference that uh, we ran in, in El Paso for this population. And then we also did some kind of in-house lobbying. And at one point, I was asking each of the cabinet members that made up our committee to come up with something which they could do without spending money, without new legislation, that would enhance the experience of, of Mexican-Americans. And I asked that of, among other things, the um, then INS, Immigration and Naturalization Service. Which was part of the Justice Department still at that point. Exactly. Right. It's now, its parts are, are, are largely now in the Department of Homeland Security. But at this point, it was it was in the Justice Department. And I, I got a response that I had trouble understanding initially. And it came from, from INS. And they said, well... We will lower the height requirement for border patrolmen <laughs> to five feet six. <laughs> and and I sort of gulped and <laughs> wondered what, what was going on. Then I realized that the border patrol, and I got to, got to know them rather better in the years later, were typically rather tall, rather Anglo, guys from, from rural areas in the southwest. And so by lowering the height limit, some more... Um, Chicanos could get these jobs. Later on, they actually started hiring women as well as <laughs> as Chicanos, and it, there's, the Border Patrol is now quite thoroughly integrated, thank you. But um, that was one of my earlier experiences with an aspect of the immigration program. After you did that, what did you do after you left federal service? After uh, Richard Nixon won in, in 1968, I was in the position of, of running a, a minor presidential commission, which was very thoroughly skewed towards the Democratic Party, so I knew that I had to get out of government. And I had, a, had an interview with an assistant secretary of labor at that point, and uh, I wanted him to do, try to do something that, uh, that would not be reversed on behalf of the Chicano community. And then he turned to me and he said, well, David, we're offering to people like you a kind of a midnight judgeship if you want, well, and if you're interested, uh, you have a research background, why don't you apply for a uh, grant uh, to study something in which you have some capability, and we'll see to it that you, you have a, um, a research grant as you leave. Sort of a golden parachute-ish kind of thing. Golden parachute, exactly. And so um, within a matter of a couple of weeks, I had resigned from the department. You can't apply for money from the department while you're working there, right. obviously. <laughs> I had joined a consulting firm, which is no longer with us, called TransCentury, run by a guy who had been a deputy director of the Peace Corps, Warren Wiggins. And then that entity applied for a grant, and something like 4.30 in the afternoon of the last day of the Johnson <laughs> administration, uh, I was signed off. And so, so I had a, a year to study green card commuters. Green card commuters are people who work in the United States, who are permanent resident aliens but live in Mexico and, to a minor extent, in Canada. And this was another part of the immigration law that depressed wages and working conditions where these, these people were concentrated, particularly in the lower Rio Grande Valley, because they were inexpensive. They were living in the low-expense Mexican economy, but working in the American economy. So that got me started in this business. And then um, as that contract was wearing down, staff at Department of Labor called me up and said, David, you're the only person we know that does any studies about immigration, which is, 
kind of true at the moment. <laughs> staff called me up and said they wanted me to look at the labor certification program. And I've been doing, for maybe 20 years, 30 years, I did various studies for various government agencies. I did some for, for INS. I did, did one for the Department of Agriculture. I did a couple for the State Department. I got involved in looking at, at how the refugee resettlement was handled, and that was a contract or two with the State Department, and then eventually with the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So I've dealt with a number of uh, immigration-related issues over, over time and a number of different populations, uh, refugees, green card holders, and very often uh, temporary workers. And I mean, that was what I started with in New Jersey, and I've dealt with farm workers and more recently with the h one program, which is, as you know, is not farm workers at all. These are college graduates, and they're um, not from Mexico. They're largely from India, and they do a lot of work in the IT field, and they have rather higher salaries. But again, it's a a wage-depressing utilization of foreign workers, and that's what I've been concentrating on for for most of my life. In a sense, H-1Bs are sort of white-collar braceros, if you think about it. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes, I like that. I like that. So given both the length and the breadth of your experience on this, what are some of the things that have occurred to you that have changed since uh, you, know, you first became acquainted with the immigration issue during the Dwight Eisenhower administration and subsequently? What's, how are things different? Well, there are three major differences, one of which is that immigration in the, in the 50s and the 60s partially because of the law that existed at that time, was largely from Europe. This is no longer true. We had much smaller numbers of, of legal immigrants coming in, and they were virtually all coming in from Europe, which was at that point covered by something called the Country of Origin Quota, which was a racist program set in motion back in 1921, in which there were country quotas for every country in, in the world, but primarily for for those in Western and Northern Europe, there were quotas for Southern and Eastern Europe, but there were virtually there's virtually no immigration at all allowed from Asia or from Africa. And meanwhile, there was so little immigration from South America, from Latin America, that there were no limits on that at all. It's really, really, really very strange. Total open border as far as legal immigration from from Latin America, which is largely from Mexico. And all of that's turned around. I mean, there are some immigrants coming in from Europe from time to time, but uh, most of the immigration is from Latin America or from, from Asia and Africa. I mean, probably Asia, Latin America, and Africa in that order. The composition of the immigrant stream has changed remarkably. Another change is the question of population. In those days, there was no particular concern, expressed concern, about the size of the American population or the overpopulation in, in the lower-skilled ranks that immigration causes, it just, just wasn't a factor. Now, we're concerned about population. We're concerned about we're dealing with 1.1 million legal immigrants a year, plus lots and lots of people in various other categories. So the whole question of the population is a major factor now, and it didn't used to be. Yeah, and in a sense, one of the other changes, it seems to me, is that and this relates specifically to whether it's foreign worker programs or illegal immigration, is that, as you had suggested earlier, it was mainly thought of as an agricultural issue, farm workers in the Southwest. 
And the thing is, there's sort of a hangover of that. People still often think of immigration, illegal immigration in particular, but even guest worker admissions as an issue that is basically about farmers and farms in the Southwest, when in fact that hasn't been true for decades. That's absolutely true. And there's also a political ramification of that. Back in the days of the, the Bracero program, the AFL, CIO, and the Catholic Church were vigorously opposed to the continuation of, of the program. And the left generally was unhappy with it for very good reasons. This is the Bracero program. This right. is the Bracero yeah. program, and, and the left was very thoroughly opposed to it. Including because, Cesar Chavez. Including Cesar Chavez, who at one point had his own little border patrol yeah. over the California-Mexico border. There was a lot of solidarity on the grounds that these people were being exploited and the program should end and American workers should get these jobs and wages. Wages should, should rise. Well, that's still true the farm worker situation. But the left was playing a, a very constructive role as far as I, I was concerned and continued to do so as long as, as Lane Kirkland was president of the AFL-CIO. And then from 20 years or so ago, he left, left that job and uh, organized labor has been very soft on immigration regulation ever since. That was another major change between then and now. Any thoughts on why Organized labor switch sides on immigration. That's the way I put it. You didn't put it that way, but I mean that's kind of no, what's that's, happening. No, that's fair. That's yeah. perfectly fair. I think there got to be a perception that there was a lot of a lot of folks that they could organize were they to let in larger numbers of low-income people, and they saw that as an opportunity. And uh, this was not the view of Lane Kirkland, who's head of the AFL-CIO for I don't know 10, 15 years. So they changed almost overnight. Right. And several years ago, when Kirkland was replaced by somebody else. Yeah, and interesting, when that happened, what they did was essentially disavow the deal of 1986. In other words, they called for ending what in the shorthand is called employer sanctions, which is to say the ban on hiring illegal immigrants, which was part of the 1986 amnesty bargain and was championed by the AFL-CIO. They were sort of at the forefront of trying to get a ban on hiring illegal immigrants. And the same organization, I don't know, what was it? It was maybe about 10 or 12 years afterwards, disavowed it. I mean, I remember reading the, the facts, because they had fax machines back then, reading the facts of the, <laughs> of the resolution that was passed by the AFL-CIO, or the board, or however it worked institutionally, calling for essentially making it legal again to hire illegal immigrants. It was really quite startling. Yeah, that was that was remarkable, and it's one of our continuing problems as we try to make sense out of our immigration policy, that the organizations that should be calling for uh, strict regulation of the labor market and, and outlawing illegal immigration, those organizations aren't with us anymore. There's another irony that was happening similar to that. And as I said, I left the Labor Department and worked on the campaign of 1964, I was then working for the late John Bailey, who was chairman of the Democratic National Committee at that time, and I was his assistant. And I found at some point, and I forget the exact issue, but there was a question about restricting foreign workers, which would, which would help resident Chicanos and resident African Americans. And yet the African Americans in the Congress, who are less numerous than they are now, didn't vote that way. And I asked Mr. Bailey about this. And he said, well, David, there's the politics of the chamber. 
term I've never heard never heard before, which meant that these alliances were not necessarily related to the facts on the ground or the wishes of the constituents. They related to the relationships of one minority, the, the black Congress members, to another minority, the Hispanic Congress members. And that was an eye-opener to me. And, and to this day, we don't have as much support for um, limiting exploitative migration policies from the, the African-American community as we might. And it's a continuation of what John Bailey explained to me of these many years ago. David, it's the politics of the chamber. In other words, two groups of congressmen pledging to vote for each other's issues, sort of trading their votes, as it were, is what you mean. Well, I'm, I'm not even sure that the trading is quite, I think it was, it was more emotional than that. Oh, okay. Interesting. But I'll never forget him saying that, and I think it's true to this day. Uh, we don't really have the, I mean, there are lots more African-American congressmen now than then, and there are lots more, lots and lots more Hispanic ones. And they still wind up in the same boat, which I find odd and um, unfortunate. What about the other side of the aisle? Because, you know, in the old days, I mean, obviously, as the AFL-CIO was one of the champions of strict immigration enforcement, in fact, Samuel Gompers, who founded the AFL, kind of created the immigration restriction movement 100, well, well over 100 years ago. Right. And I always get a kick out of the fact that the Cato Institute, which is opposed to immigration controls of any kind, therefore unlimited immigration, Every time they walk out of their office building in Washington, they have to look out on the Samuel Gompers statue across the street. <laughs> I didn't know that. Both parties had both inclinations, and the Democrats, especially in legal immigration, were generally speaking more liberal. At least they had more liberals in them in the sense of liberalized immigration. But there was a pretty strong element on the right of pro-business support for loose immigration rules and high levels of immigration, and that has switched, too. How have you seen that working over the years? It may be a um, phenomenon that in, in which economic issues are not sensed as being as, as important as cultural issues or racial issues. And currently, um, some of the strongest supporters of limited migration are people who largely have very conservative points of view otherwise. And it, as I said, if the left isn't doing what it used to do, and to some extent the right isn't either. I mean, that's an interesting question, is that you're still a Democrat, and you see yourself yeah. as a Democrat, and you vote Democrat and all that stuff, as the Seinfeld line goes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, <laughs> uh, personally, I'm a Republican. I always have been. But in a sense, sort of you're more orphaned on the immigration issue Oh, yeah. And I am. And so, you know, what has that experience been like, essentially being orphaned? I hadn't thought about the word orphan. That's that's a wonderful term. Yeah. Um, all my, you know, all my one time allies are either dead or totally retired. I find uh, that within my own family and my wife's extended family that my point of view is, and, and you know, they're all they're all liberal Democrats on, on both sides of the family. I find I'm kind of lonely in, in, in this situation. So uh, it's sad, and but it's but it's there, and uh, the concept of being orphaned is a is an excellent one. Maybe another way to put it is you're a refugee. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I am. 
Any other thoughts on how things have changed? I think we can wrap it up. Okay. Well, there used to be more more bipartisanship generally on a, a whole series of issues. Right. And and there would be people like Alan Simpson, for instance, who was chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee of the Senate for many years, a man I admire, a Republican from Wyoming, I should add, who could see these things clearly and, and could could talk to his colleagues. And he he, he had a... Uh, a good personal relationship with Teddy Kennedy, who was the ranking Democrat on the uh, subcommittee when he wasn't chair and vice versa. And they could talk and they could trade and they didn't surprise each other and they opposed each other when when necessary. But it was a a more pleasant environment, shall we say. More collegial, if you will. More collegial, right. And Alan Simpson was running for the uh, Republican leadership and lost to Trent Lott and thereafter left the Senate. I'm sorry that that's happened, because he was a highly useful member, if, as far as I'm concerned, a member of the other party. Yeah, so in a sense, what we've seen on immigration maybe is something we've seen replicated in other areas, maybe not quite as intensely, but that polarization that we've seen in other areas maybe is most pronounced, or among the places it's most pronounced, is immigration. That's perfectly true. That's perfectly true. The uh, 1986 amnesty that you you referred to, also called the Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, was also called the Simpson-Mazzoli Bill. Simpson was the chair of the Immigration Subcommittee in the Senate. Uh, Mr. Mazzoli was a Democrat and was uh, from Louisville, Kentucky, and he was the chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee in the House. And you just don't see that anymore. Ron Mazzoli taught a class at the Harvard Kennedy School, I think, really? after leaving for a while. In other words, he's not, I don't think he's still there, but it was one of these, the Institute of Politics, I think they call it. So politicians often will go there for a year or two after they leave and talk about their actual experience. And he was a Democrat and all that, I mean, but a very different one. He was willing to talk about immigration, even if he disagreed with you. There was a lot more, he was able to debate and discuss the issue in a way that I'm afraid you just don't see a lot of Democratic lawmakers. It's just become kind of cant. In other words, they just recite the accepted phrases and don't go much beyond it, I'm afraid. I mean, you see that on the Republican side, too, obviously, but I think it's even more pronounced on the Democratic side. Well, it's, it's a different scene. It's a, it's a less attractive scene, and it's one in which it's, it's going to be very difficult to work out any, any rational change in our immigration policy. And Currently, the Biden administration, unfortunately, is just opening every single gate that they can find at the southern border and, and, and in various other more sophisticated and more complicated ways. And so I, I am not particularly optimistic as I, as I look into the near future. Well, but, you know, you and we will keep at it, keep providing the information that I think, I mean, I'm optimistic, maybe Foolishly so, but I think in the long run, we're going to end up with better immigration policy. But in the meantime, we're going to keep working on this issue. And we probably will have you back to talk about some of the specific issues because you have, as you mentioned, written about and continue to follow a lot of the specific issues like these uh, bogus colleges that exist to give foreign students work visas and the optional practical training program and the investor visa. A lot of these specific issues are things that you follow that really no one who isn't somehow invested in them financially really follows. And so that's a valuable service that you continue to provide, I think, for policymakers and citizens. And we'll look forward to 
doing this again in the future. Thanks for coming on, David. Well, thank, thank you, Mark. Thank you for your questions. And I may not share your optimism, but I hope <laughs> you're right. Great. All of David's work is online at cis.org, which is our website. Everybody else's work is there too, but you can just look for author and David North is there. He's posting on our blog several times a week at least, as well as uh, producing longer studies. And for my closing commentary, I wanted to talk about the recent visits to the border by Vice President Harris and by President Trump. Vice President Harris had insisted for three months or more that she wasn't going to go to the border, even though President Biden had named her border czar, as it were. She denied that she was border czar. She wanted to have nothing to do with the border. She insisted that she was merely in charge of dealing with root causes, so-called, in Central America, poverty, disorder, that sort of thing even though the real root cause of the current border crisis is sitting in the Oval Office. But after her disastrous visit to Guatemala and Mexico, and after Lester Holt of NBC and some other reporters pressed her on the issue of whether she was going to visit the border, and she gave her characteristic, awkward, clumsy, and really an embarrassing answers, things like, well, I haven't gone to Europe either. What's your point? She was going to have to go to the border. At least have some kind of photo op there just to be able to check off the box so that otherwise compliant and friendly media would give her a break. Well, the timing, though, was pressed, was sort of her hand was forced by former President Trump because he had announced that he was going to go with Governor Abbott of Texas to visit the border, South Texas specifically, where, which is sort of the uh, epicenter of the border crisis. And so she visited what is now last Friday when you're listening to this, and it was really more of a layover on her flight to LA. Uh, she was there for four hours. The only part of the actual border she went to was the port of entry in El Paso, the legal crossing point, which is an important place to go, but that's not the kind of place that we're talking about when we're talking about the border crisis. She didn't go to any place where there was gaps in the wall, certainly didn't go to South Texas. And the visit really was just staged for, in a sense, reporters to be able to stop asking her why she hasn't gone to the border yet for the reporter's self-respect, because as much as they want to support her and not embarrass her, just basic self-respect of a reporter forces them to ask the question. Now they don't have to. She's checked the box and she's off the hook in that sense. The problem though for the vice president is that the reason she was avoiding going to the border all along is she didn't want to be saddled with that intractable issue. She knows that it's a disaster. And she knows that her administration has no realistic response that will lessen the problem. The problem was mostly fixed, at least stabilized under Trump. Didn't solve all the problems. There are still loopholes in the law. There are still all kinds of problems. But under Trump, they did in fact stabilize the situation. And this administration came in and broke something that was working. 
Harris knows that. And Harris knows that nothing they do is going to make any difference, even if this root causes stuff, you know, somehow making Central America into Denmark, uh, even if it would work, you know, it would take decades to make any difference. The Biden administration also is hoping to bribe Mexico to do a better job of stopping the illegals by any means necessary, as long as, you know, we don't have to see it uh, before they get to the border. And Mexico, you know, We'll probably do some of that if we pay them enough, but there's a limit to how much that's going to work. And so Harris's objective or Harris's uh, incentive in not going to the border was not to be saddled with the border disaster. So that having gone now to the border, checked off the box as it were, I think from her perspective, she figures, okay, now... I'm in the clear, and I don't have to worry about this anymore. The reality is, this is just the beginning of her border problems, because now, as the only senior member of the administration who's gone to visit the border, and one who is ostensibly in charge of border issues, she now is definitively the border czar, or czarina. So even though her people will be able to say, okay, well, she visited the border, you, you know, stop complaining about that. But having visited the border, now essentially officially having taken office, uh, you know, metaphorically, as the border czarina, critics will justifiably direct questions about the border to her. And there's going to be plenty of problems. The numbers may go down a little bit in the summer because of the brutal heat down there. But this problem is not really going away. And in fact, the numbers may not even go down. I think they probably will, but there's indications that they're not. And one of the reasons is that people are coming from all over the world. One of our analysts who we've featured on earlier podcasts, Todd Benzman, recently was down in Central America, Nicaragua and Costa Rica this time, talking not to Central American migrants who come from a little further north in Central America, but the ones from overseas. Uh, some of them from S South America or even the Caribbean, but a lot of them also from Africa, Asia, Europe even, uh, Romanian gypsies, uh, as well as all kinds of other people, Mauritanians, Uzbeks, Bangladeshis, you name it. Those people may figure, well, they're here, they spent all this money and time, and they may not really care about whether it's hot or not. So we'll see whether the numbers go down a little in the summer. But even if they do, it's not going to go down that much. The problem is going to continue, and people will justifiably continue to be pressing the vice president on what she's doing about this problem, which she has now embraced, and it's now in her lap. President Trump is uh, visiting the border today as I'm taping this, taping this Wednesday, even though you'll be listening to this uh, at the earliest on Thursday. And he visited a gap in the border wall with Governor Abbott of Texas and had a round table with law enforcement. And, um, you know, even though in his kind of trademark hyperbole talked about how the border was perfect and the best border ever, you know, the usual Trump stuff, which wasn't really that. I mean, he had stabilized the border, though. There were still problems to be solved, but that border was not the disaster area that it is now with, you know, raft after raft of people coming across and just being waved into the United States. And so... I expect the former president, Trump, and Republicans to continue to be slamming the Biden administration for this. And 
the Biden people deserve it. I'm not really sure what their exit strategy is. I think it's more just a matter of keeping their fingers crossed and hoping somehow this problem is going to go away. And I don't think it is. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian. I hope you tune in next week to our next episode. Thank you.